This podcast is proudly brought to you by Autodesk, a leader in 3D design and entertainment software. Autodesk solutions help filmmakers, game developers and other content creators solve complex production challenges and create innovative, distinctive entertainment. Hi and welcome to the VFX Show, I'm Mike Seymour and this is our review of Avengers. Of course the VFX Show is our review show brought to you this week by Autodesk. Our review show uh, is of course different from our FX podcast where we actually speak to the filmmakers and do interviews and stuff and our RC podcast on uh, digital cinematography and of course FX Guide TV. The VFX Show which you're listening to now of course is our review show and as such we need a couple of healthy reviewers to help us. We're always fairly international on the VFX Show um, and this time particularly so because we have uh, Matt Wallen, you're in, in the U- US of A. Whereabouts are you sir? Yeah, I'm on the East Coast in Virginia where it's uh, about 6 o'clock at night right now. And uh, Matt Leonard, who would normally be in the UK, but is in fact coming to us from what, Stuttgart? Stuttgart in Germany, yes, ready for the uh, ready for the FMX conference that kicks off tomorrow. Well, unusual uh, perhaps, or increasingly more um, common than not, is the fact that this film, Avengers, actually opened in our areas, uh, Matt Leonard, mine and yours, being England and the US of A, uh, sorry, the UK and the US, and yeah... <laughs> <laughs> the UK and Australia before the US. Um, I'm, I get just so unused to saying that, um, but it is in fact uh, the case with this and Battleship, which uh, which is interesting. So, so Matt Wallen, you've seen it most recently, so maybe you should kick off the review. Okay, yeah. I mean, I was a I was a big fan of the comic books as a kid, and uh, I used to uh, ride my bike down to the Seven Eleven and, and uh, get the latest Avengers comic book. And so I was I was looking forward to this movie, but I, but after having seen, um, uh, let's see, the the last two, right? The uh, or I guess Iron Man two, and then Captain America and um, uh, Thor. I I was sort of wondering if you know is Marvel running out of steam? Are we not going to be able to like kind of keep this going? Um, and was a little bit uh, wary of what was going to happen, but I took my my son, uh, who's eight, and a couple of his buddies to see this last Friday, and we went and we saw it in real D or whatever real three D uh, um, at the local theater here, and uh, I loved it. I thought it was so great. It was. I, I feel like uh, Joss Whedon, the director, and then you know everybody working on this film. It's like they really understand. Uh, on some deep fundamental level, what it is that the fans really want out of a movie like this, and it delivered on you know on all levels. I thought from a visual effects point of view, from a story point of view, from an acting point of view, it had you know great humor in it. It had you know a, a, a pretty decent story. Like you know we could probably have some qualms about some story elements in it, but but I just I was totally satisfied, and I, I mean I laughed out loud, and the kids had a great time, and um, I think it it's it's definitely the best Marvel film. Um, as a as a total film, I think since the first Iron Man. Yeah, it's certainly the case that all three of us um, are parents. I certainly took my two girls, and they loved it to death, and they're big fans of uh, Iron Man. And uh, some of their most prized possession are some Iron Man crew T-shirts that ILM gave me, so <laughs> so they're big fans. Um, but Matt Leonard, you, your kid's too young to go, or did you take some uh, some younger fans? No, they were they're probably too young to see this one. 
I had um, I had never really been a fan of of the comic book. I just kind of didn't read that kind of comic because I was growing up, and I've kind of kept an eye on all the other movies, the Iron Man movies and and Captain America, and had seen them all. But this movie was something that I thought I ought to see, but I wasn't really sure whether I'd like it, whether it'd be a bit boring. But when it came out, I was a bit naughty. I kind of snuck off work with a friend of mine, Ben, and we went and we saw it at the IMAX. And um, I have to say, we absolutely loved it. It was such a great film. Um, I came out and I thought to myself, outside of the visual effects, story-wise as a film, there's really nothing to, to dislike about it. It was one of those showings where all the kind of comic book fans were there. There were people dressed up in costumes. <laughs> and um, it was just a great atmosphere. People were whooping and clapping and cheering at all the right jokes. And it was just a great experience. So, uh, yeah, it would definitely get a big thumbs up from me. So, in the screening that I saw, I saw it in mono. I didn't see it in stereo. Um, and that was, uh, I guess, a semi-deliberate decision on my part. It was mainly because uh, it was opening day in Sydney as it opened around the world, it opened huge uh, box office in Sydney. And it just so happened that um, uh, we were kind of late getting to tickets. And I thought, well, if I go to the non-stereo version, I'll get better seats, which I did. And uh, and I took a sort of a bunch of us. I think there was, got eight of us in total. So I needed a fair bunch of seats. You said, uh, Matt Wallen, you saw it in stereo. Matt Leonard, you saw it in IMAX. But was that in mono or in stereo? That was in stereo. But then I saw it in mono uh, just last night as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So... I don't, I'm not going to just touch the stereo conversion on other than I'm going to ask you, Matt, what you thought of the stereo conversion because it was a fully converted film. Well, Matt Wallen, because I think the IMAX is a slightly different beast altogether. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't aware of the fact that it was a conversion, but uh, that makes sense actually given what I would say is probably, I, I mean, as you guys might know, I'm not a huge fan of 3D as a as a form. I don't know that I'm totally sold on it as something that we need or that gives us something that we don't already get from um, you know a cinematic experience. And I would love to go back and see this movie again in 2D because I mean I thought you know it was a great film. I really enjoyed it. You know had a fun time. But the one thing that um, was difficult was that it felt very um, planar, you know, in terms of the 3D. Like there were several shots where um, in the sort of the big sequence, uh, sort of the culminating finale battle over uh, New York, there were several shots where you would see the, um, you know, the the bad guys on their kind of like rocket cycles or whatever those things were, where they're flying around and, and uh, a couple of the characters get on board those things. And you would see them in sort of the mid-ground and they were really, really sharp and very crisp. And then the things in the back were soft and the things in the foreground were kind of soft and blurred, you know, because they were moving so quickly. But the sharpness and the sort of very two-dimensional kind of planar feeling of it really, it didn't feel like... It felt more like something that was converted, at least to my eye, than something that was natively 3D. And while it wasn't really distracting, it was something that was noticeable. And I, I just, I'd question whether or not that's a look or an aesthetic that really helps in any way. I think it would have been just as good to watch it in straight 2D, although I, I don't know having not seen it in that form yet. Yeah, well, look, we could devote a lot of discussion to stereo conversion this was done by stereo d who did titanic uh most recently and and i got to hear them uh, there was a panel discussion in ab uh with the president of uh stereo d as well as 
John Lagarde on stuff. Except I just don't want to go there on this one because I think there's so much other stuff to cover. Uh, so I'm just going to leave the stereo stuff. We're going to loop around on that. And we actually have a bunch of really good stuff on stereo conversion coming up on FX Guide. So if I can just put that to one side for a second and focus on the visual effects and we'll try and um, do that. Um, I must say, I was, I'm looking forward to seeing the next Dark Knight in IMAX, uh, but this film obviously wasn't shot for IMAX. So as we've just quickly dealt with the stereo, let's quickly dealt with the IMAX version. Did it play well in IMAX? Because the aspect ratio is different. The, the sweet spot's kind of different. Did you, Matt Leonard, notice a difference? Uh, did it feel comfortable in, in, uh, in IMAX? <laughs> I think it would have done if I hadn't arrived at the cinema so late that I was sat in the second to front row. Right, complete disaster. So it, was a very, <laughs> it was a very immersive experience for me and there was a lot of head turning going on. But from that position, it, it looked not too bad, though I'd have liked to have obviously been a bit further back. Second row from the back is the optimum place uh, for IMAX. <laughs> yes. Was it a proper IMAX, big IMAX, or was it one of those sort of digital yeah. IMAXs that's sort of a three-quarter half version? I would say it was probably a three-quarter size. Right. No, that's not so bad, yeah. The one in yeah. Sydney is about one of the largest in the world, and if you don't sit about second row from the back, you're getting motion sickness. <clears throat> um, <laughs> okay, so let's discuss it in terms of uh, just straight story, and we'll get on to the visual effects, which is the majority of the show. And I guess the question I'm going to start with you, Matt Leonard. You said you weren't a huge comic book fan. Neither was I, actually. I tended to not read a lot of comic books. Um, at a very young age, I might have read some, but I wasn't one of those people that you know, got into the whole graphic novel thing. But um, I thought this, this film was really good. But it seems to me, as somebody that isn't a diehard fan, that the Whedon factor, Josh Whedon, uh, is the thing that makes this film. It's, it's very well handled from a directorial point of view because you've got a lot of stars which have all to sort of certain amount of time needed in the spotlight he um he penned the film as well and he's infused humor in it and so you've got more than just action sequence action sequence action sequence you actually have sequences that are punctuated by humor and i think the 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 most obvious sort of classic case of that is the simplest one where uh, Black Widow is um, being interrogated and you just have this lovely little cut back to, uh, to the agent, is it Coulson, uh, on hold, just waiting and it's like she's having this huge action signature cut back to him and it's almost like the on hold music kind of shot of him and then it cuts back to the action again and it's those little emotional releases that I think uh, are great Would you agree with me that, that the director really was pivotal in getting this film to kind of not sort of collapse under its own weight of both expectation and just sheer logistics of handling so many kind of weird storylines yeah it just seemed it seemed like a really nice balanced story i mean every character seemed to get a good amount of screen time and as you said there were lots of kind of emotional points in the film where it kind of stopped and you got to know the characters a little bit more there was a lot of humor that was put in it felt very much like a kind of an Iron Man one humor, the way it had been put together and the, some of the one-liners that were just fantastic. So it, to me, it, it felt like you could almost come to this movie kind of knowing about the characters but not having seen the other movies. You wouldn't necessarily get all the jokes, but it was all there was enough in there to make this a movie that stood out on its own, I think, and I really enjoyed just the way the story had been kind of put together and, and the way the characters interacted and the time they had together. And, and the other, Matt, <laughs> did, you, um, did you sort of agree with that? Did you, I mean, because I thought that the, the pacing of it, I mean, it was a fairly long film, but the pacing of it was mm -hmm. a remarkable achievement in just directing. Yeah, I, I think he did a phenomenal job. I mean, I think, you know, a movie like this is difficult for a host of reasons. One, I mean, 
you know, it's a it's a big movie. Uh, it, there's huge expectations for what you're going to get out of it. I think for all the the sort of you know hardcore fans. And I think there's a danger when you're in that position as a, as I would imagine, as a director. Not, of course, I haven't made a comic book movie myself, but um, no, two hundred fifty million dollar films in the backyard, no. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, you know, I would think that you know, it really puts you in an awkward position where you know you want to sort of pay respect to the material because you know that there's a very loyal and dedicated fan base, but at the same time too, you know, you really want to make uh, a great movie and. I think he struck the exact right balance where he, you know, paid respect to the material, but he made it really a hell of a lot of fun by really just not taking it too seriously. You know, it had, it wasn't pure camp, but at the same time, there were moments of camp, you know, that that were perfect in tone and just really made, it invited the audience to sort of join in on, you know, kind of the fun of the movie and kind of a little bit in on the end, in the in on the joke a little bit, you know? Yeah, I don't want to get too Freudian about it, but it seemed to me that there's a difficulty with this film that you need to a little bit have the character self-aware that they are so preposterous, you know, walking around in like odd suits and stuff. But you don't want them to be parodied to the point that the audience is embarrassed to be the sort of audience that's paid money to go and see that. In other words, you have to sort of... As I think happened also, by the way, in Star Trek, um, the last one, uh, where... You know, it was like it was okay to like this film because it wasn't taking itself too seriously, but nor was it saying this is just silly and you're being ripped off and you're an idiot for for being caring about these guys walking around in tights kind of thing. You know, it's it, you've got to you've got to have some humour there, but not so much that you're sort of poking fun at it and the fans feel like you know you really are just not not caring. But by the same token, as you just said, if you go too far and start making it this very complicated fan thing with super references to obscure stuff most of the audience is just going to turn off. Well, and can, can I, uh, can we, we can say, we, you know, this is a spoiler show, right? Absolutely. So we're assuming you've seen this movie. Um, the one thing, this came up in a conversation online with, with Ian, you know, who's uh, one of the producers of the show, and we were talking online, and uh, I guess the press screening he saw in Australia did not have this one shot that I think really kind of sums up the whole movie in a way, which is the shot that's at the very end of the credits mm. where uh, it's, it's all the characters sitting around um, uh, at the shawarma place in total silence eating at, you know, as the, the proprietors of the restaurant are sort of sweeping up and the camera's sort of just locked off. And it, I mean, it's really funny, but at the same time, uh, a friend of the show, um, the guy robotica dot uh, underscore org on Twitter, um, William Meyer. He uh, and I were talking about it on Twitter, and he said he just said he loved how that scene went um, past comedy. It found a moment of poignancy, and then swung back around to comedy again, which I thought was really insightful. And it's true. I mean, that's that's really kind of how that scene played out. Like it was really funny. You see them eating, and then there's a moment where it's just kind of serious, and you're like, "Wow, that was a pretty hardcore battle." Like they're totally burned out. And then at the end, like the the Thor character takes a big bite of his uh, shawarma or whatever, and it just is totally hilarious. And the absurdity of these guys sitting there in those costumes, you know, and putting it into the context of a real world New York, I just thought that was great. And I felt like it kind of sums up the flavor of the whole movie in a really neat sort of single uh, silent scene, you know. So let's talk about the visual effects, and which is obviously what we're primarily here to do. And uh, we're talking about 2,200 shots from 
what we described in a uh, story on FX Guide as a real roll call um, of VFX houses. So ILM and Weta took the heavy lifting, especially uh, ILM, uh, and ILM in turn sort of under their wing, which is something ILM's doing quite a lot these days, had Scanline. Now, I say under their wing because you have other houses, say, um, pick one, I don't know, um, Creative uh, Cantina Creative, for example, who did the head-up display. That's another company that reports into their team, but it doesn't go through ILM versus Scanline, who known very much for their water work, who work through ILM, and so they sort of... Uh, subcontracting almost, but not in a in a sort of an odd way. It's something that ILM's doing increasingly. You kind of get the ILM umbrella. So you've got ILM, Weta, Scanline, Hydraulics, who did the uh, start sequence, which, by the way, I must admit, until I was researching for the show, I'd almost forgotten how, much, how good that opening sequence is uh, with the initial attack. Fuel in Sydney, who did a bunch of the stuff in Stark's apartment, Evil Eye, Pictures, Luma. And then there's a bunch of others, uh, Whiskey Tree Digital, um, Third Floor obviously did the uh, previs as they tend to do. Method, I think, did a really good des- job on the end title design. Digital Domain was oh, yeah, in there. yeah, those were great. Just a ton of companies. We've got a complete list pretty much, I think, uh, on FX Guide if you want to go through it. Um, but, yeah, let's well, let's actually touch on that. Um, what you just mentioned, Matt, those, those end titles, an odd place to start. But I do think that uh, it is a bit of a like quality clue. This film had money behind it and it had a sort of an attention to detail and that was shown in the end titles, which, quite frankly, you could have saved a bunch of money off by not worrying about too much, but they were pretty, uh, pretty juicy in their own right. They were gorgeous. Yeah, I thought the, uh, the just that end title sequence, the the sort of the the real, um, you know, almost extreme close up kind of um, what at times almost felt like macro photography of well, not quite macro, but close ups of you know the key elements of some of these. Uh, superheroes you know their costumes their weapons their accoutrement and um the the textures the materials the the renders the lighting very heroic um they were just absolutely gorgeous and just so well done and the attention to de- the attention to detail in all of those bits and pieces was just extraordinary i thought they they it just really looked great and it was such a neat uh, way to kind of polish off um you know the finale of the film with those great uh, end titles now, Matt Leonard, that was done by Method Studios, and they had to up-res um, and basically redo a little bit of the texturing and, and work on that uh, in ZBrush because a lot of those little tents and, and tears in the suits weren't designed for that sort of super close-up. And I think they rendered that in, in V-Ray and Mental Ray. You're obviously a, a 3D guy, um, not to dish the After Effects and Nuke work on it as well, but just in terms of the the look of those uh, that 3D stuff, I thought it was holding up really, really well. And V-Ray seems to be really solid in this area, doesn't it? Yeah, it looked fantastic. I mean, the the kind of macro look, as, as Matt said, looked great, and the whole kind of flares and things that they'd put in looked looked really nice. And I think, yeah, it's just interesting seeing that, obviously, they, they went with a V-Ray uh, look, which I think Scanline also used on some of their work. So, uh, it, yeah, it looked really nice. It was a really nice kind of closing to the film. And it was just a chance almost to see some of that, as you said, kind of paraphernalia that, you know, makes those superheroes uh, I, I like the word iconic. accoutrement that uh, Matt used. High <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> <I'm> <laughs> College professor uh, lingo, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you bring a certain je ne sais quoi to the show. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it, I think V-Ray does this kind of stuff really well. I mean, in another life, this could be uh, product shots for 
for something. And uh, of course, the scratching and the aging is what makes it have a story, but the actual lighting on it and uh, the soft, shallow kind of depth of field, which gives it that sort of macroish look, worked really, really well. I thought it was just a nice, nice uh, job. And I like Method as a whole. I think they do good design work. Would you agree, Matt? Leonard? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. They they do great work. It just looked really nice. They they clean, and yet obviously with that depth of field look, it just added a whole kind of dimension to it. And just the the speed of the animation, the pacing of the cuts, it just worked really well and went with kind of those final end credits as they kind of put the names up along with uh, the kind of specific person that that uh, graphic was you being uh, presented to, as it were. Well, let's jump back to the other end of the film, which was the previous work by Third Floor. Third Floor, the go-to place for previous, um, a spin-off from the, the Lucas family, um, and based in LA and actually now are on a third floor. They, they've really expanded. Um, they did a lot of the previous work, but actually also post-vizzed, which, uh, Matt Wallen, I was going to get you to discuss. This idea of post viz especially on a show of this size and magnitude is pretty important because you're really into fully animated sequences in certain sections of the fight choreography but you want to tie those in with what you're kind of getting from the actors and and so this idea that just pre-visit and then go make it is a fairly now uh it has really morphed into this idea of previous what you think you might do kind of get some stuff and then post-vis work it out doesn't it yeah i mean i think you know in particular i felt like you know that kind of uh Critical previs as well as uh, postvis, I think, is really um, apparent when you look at. Um, I, I can't remember what they call that one shot in particular, but it's sort of the one big. It's the money shot in the movie. It's the big hero shot where they go from character to character during the big New York battle scene. Um, and the end, they, the, you mean the end uh, hero shot where it swings around the, the all the guys? No, not the one where it swings around all the guys at the end, but the there's one shot where uh, the it's it's one continuous shot where it's basically going from you know Avenger to Avenger as they're all sort of in different parts of the battlefield. Right. It's one of those. Sh- it's sort of like the the Scorsese uh, shot of the Avengers film, if the, if you want to uh, use the metaphor of the. Um, the great Scorsese tracking shot thing, but um, but I think uh, what what I really like about that shot and when it comes together, I remember watching it. Uh, it was sort of the climax of the battle, and I and I I wasn't conscious of it being all essentially. I mean, I know it's many pieces that are then attached after the fact, but but watching it and seeing it as one continuous shot, it really conveyed both the scale of the battle, the scale of the environment, as well as kind of the you know, I think one of the key story elements of the sort of the team aspect of what they're doing and trying to sort of, you know, assemble this group of unique individuals or whatever. And I felt like that shot in particular was one that really, um, you can't imagine planning that shot and assembling the pieces for that shot without um, doing really pretty sophisticated, uh, whether it's storyboarding or previs beforehand, because there's so many moving parts. And to be able to assemble those things together into one moving shot, um, at the end, you know, you're really going to have to, I think, have a pretty good game plan going forward. Yeah, it really was a choreography problem, wasn't it? Yeah, I would say so. It's just how do you how do you get that dance to happen so that you don't have dead time? Um, it is it is, let's face it, really important to have good uh, filmic cinematic people on that. I know that the guys at Third Floor 
deliver on that. They use Maya and After Effects and do it to good effect. But what's also interesting is that they've increasingly become um, a Maya asset place so that they can interchange assets with the various facilities because, uh, and we know this from having visited them and speaking to them, because they don't want to create a shot that looks great in previs but actually can't be done inside the sort of actual geometry of what um, what a place has been set up for without sort of, you know, making buildings only you know, eight feet wide kind of thing. Um, and so that that sort of getting it right at the geometry level, the units, and I'm talking now sort of metres and proportions and stuff, really allows uh, the artist to deliver because there's a lot of shots to get done. And if you're struggling to try and get something that the director has liked, though it looks fine in the previews, but actually in reality is virtually impossible to pull off, um, you can really screw up a shot and you get into compromises. So... So having that, I'm sure, would have been a really uh, key aspect. Yeah, having a framework and a template, I think, from the get-go, is something this complex with this many moving parts, as you say. I think, I mean, it's, you couldn't do it without it. You know? I mean, it's critical. And, and doing it, as I say, like in the old days, you would do previous you know, or storyboards, obviously. You didn't give a rat's ass about you know, how you would actually translate that to the VFX shots because it was just a completely separate process. But having this now more seamless integration of the previous and post-vis with the actual assets and the scale and everything else um, is making that previs much more uh, technically valid, um, and of course, you know, creatively, it needs to really be on its on its game. Um, Matt Leonard, I felt that the character that really stole the show was uh, Hulk. Certainly, in the cinema that I was seeing it in, which also had a lot of fans, there was mid-film applause for several of the key uh, Hulk sequences, which is pretty surprising if you think about how much people like myself hated the earlier Hulk uh, for its physical lack of weight and its seemingly skipping uh, persona, especially in one of them. Um, Hulk really kind of, for me, stole the show. Did it do that for you and the audience that you saw it with? Yeah, we definitely, in that first show, we had exactly the same reaction, kind of whoops and cheers as the as the Hulk did various crazy things to uh, to people. And there's obviously two uh, very specific shots in the film where the Hulk does quite comical things to a couple of the uh, the other characters. But yeah, I mean, it just looked fantastic. It was, it was completely different, I felt, in the way the uh, banner transformed into the Hulk, and I really liked that look but then the, the Hulk itself once you actually saw it and you saw it moving around I just thought they'd really upped all the things like the skin the muscle deformation and just the emotion that the that the Hulk brought into the story was was fantastic so I would have been happy if they had shown the Hulk a lot more than they did though obviously we had quite a lot of screen time with him I thought the um the the funniest like and just quite unexpected joke was the punching of Thor. I just thought that yeah. was just hysterical. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, I just the didn't expect that. Well, was in laughter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it seemed, it seemed like in, uh, in it they had, there were some almost traditional animation kind of timings that they had done for various things. That shot was timed fantastically and also the shot later with uh, Hulk and Loki, which again caused the audience to roar with laughter. The, the timing was just fantastic. So I think they, they did a great animation job. I, I think the ILM crew, with all the work they did on the Hulk in particular, I mean, they deserve a lot of kudos, just given the difficulty of uh, 
what they were out to capture. I mean, they've got Mark Ruffalo's actual features in the face of the Hulk, you know, and uh, which I guess they did with some actual facial capture as well as some motion capture on the body, you know, retargeting all that stuff for the face because the geometry is so different. And um, I just thought, you know, that it was a great combination of motion capture as well as uh, traditional kind of more character animation. I mean, it's just beautiful, beautiful work, really amazing. And it, and it definitely... To me, it was the he was the character who stole the show for sure. I do think that the popular press goes, "Oh, it's so great that Ruffalo did, uh, you know, Hulk and even ILM's, you know, very respectful of Mark Ruffalo." And I love that guy as an actor, but if you think that most of this is Mark Ruffalo, uh, you really don't understand the the visual effects process because apart from the retargeting, which you know um, is not inconsequential, there's there's a lot of stuff when he's leaping off buildings and stuff that you just can't possibly have an actor motion capture. Oh, sure. You yeah. can have some posing and you can have some really great, um, really great contributions from the actor. Don't get me wrong, but it's got to be a collaboration between the two of them. I heard Mark Ruffalo speaking at an event and he actually said that any kudos he got, he wanted to share with the animator. So clearly Mark Ruffalo himself fully acknowledges that, um, you know, while he can see his performance translated, he himself went through hell and, you know, high water to get, everything ILM wanted from having his teeth scanned to his cheeks done to donning <laughs> his everything. tongue, I think, too, right? Yeah, no, so he totally committed, but he also was, you know, first to say that this is a completely collaborative process with the animators. And the animators, the character animators at ILM, just, I think, delivered. I mean, well, they delivered, but also, as I think somebody just said a second ago, um, the guys who did the ZBrush remodeling of the Hulk mm. based on his uh, face, as well as, of course, the the actual sort of technical retargeting um, of the motion capture stuff, all of those people contributed because uh, I'm normally very critical of, of uh, weight and characters moving in sort of stupid ways given their size and he really, really did a good job. Uh, the, the character did a good job. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the other one... I mean, it's all, all, on, the, all on the shoulders, I think, you know, for the most part of, of the animators. I mean, just really yeah. top shelf, <laughs> top shelf work. Um, so tell me, uh, well, why don't you talk, Matt, about the other scene that obviously was the crowd sort of pleaser, which was the puny god uh, shot, because that's kind of interesting at a couple of levels. Yeah, this was the shot where um, kind of Loki and the Hulk kind of face off, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the line that was kind of delivered uh, just before, but it it culminated in, in the Hulk basically grabbing Loki by the ankles and then just slamming him over and over again into the ground. And um, the timing was just fantastic, and it was one of the funniest parts of the entire movie. Um, and everything, the whole kind of dynamics of the way the muscles were moving on the Hulk and uh, the expression on his face, it was just a perfect shot. And uh, again, as we said, just kudos to the animators, really. Well, it's the one thing, too, where I guess the Hulk actually has some lip-synced uh, dialogue where he, exactly. he has a yeah, single line right. where he says, puny God. But to be honest with you, in the, in the theater where I saw it, I mean, it wasn't even a full theater, but everybody just burst out in uncontrollable laughter. I mean, that was just so funny. I didn't even know there was a line of dialogue in that sequence until I read your story, Mike, where you talked with uh, uh, what's uh, Jeff uh, what? uh, Jeff white yeah at ilm i hadn't uh, realized that there was even a line of dialogue there and so you know it, it was one of those things where it kind of is masked by the animation but that rag doll and the physics of it you know it's like a child throwing a tantrum and it's just so well done i mean it felt like something out of uh, 
you know, a ratatouille or something. It had that kind of Pixar-esque kind of animation moment where it was sort of exaggerated, but it, it worked perfectly in the moment. And then the follow-up scene to that where his reaction shots, uh, Loki's reaction shots where he's sort of lying, you know, half buried in the, uh, the, the ground, the floor of the Stark building, <laughs> you know, uh, basically immobilized, were just really <laughs> great. It sold the whole thing. Yeah, you know, um, I should point out ILM uh, did the what I call the ragdoll sequence where he's uh, thrown around. The reaction stuff where he's lying in the ground was actually um, fuel, right? Yeah, fuel yeah, in. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's many many cases you were doing that. You were cutting between vendors um, dramatically, and uh, and I'm going to come back to that when we discuss Iron Man. But before we get off ILM, uh, you said while I was talking to them, I just want to flag we have a podcast that's about an hour discussion I had with Jeff White discussing the film. Some of that is in the written article, but if you like the written article on FX Guide, you should listen to that podcast because it's a uh, we go in a lot more depth uh, for a lot longer as we can do, obviously in an in depth uh, podcast. Um, I listened to that on my on my run today, and I got to say, Jeff, what a guy! I mean, he's such a nice guy. I mean, oh, what totally. a great, uh, just so. Uh, Great sense of humor and just, you know, so uh, accommodating and really, um, you know, just lots of great information in that interview. Yeah. And and one of the things that I enjoyed in that interview, which I wanted to bring up now, um, I'm not just mentioning it for promotional reasons. I genuinely sort of thought that it was uh, interesting. The scanning yeah. that they did to make New York, and you'll hear the in the interview, and it was genuine. He would say, oh, we just scanned New York and we did, you know, about, and you'd be like, what? And you'd back up there. How much did you do? And he's like, well, about 10 blocks by three. And we, so we photographed that. And then we were like, wait, wait, back up. How'd you do 10 blocks of photography in New York? And then he'd, you know, he'd go down another level. And every time I'd kind of interrupt him and pull him up because what seemed like a one line kind of sort of not blow off, but skipping over when you dig deep, just got down to, you know, somebody had to go and move down. New York mm-hmm. taking a series of tiled HDR shots on a 1D, the 50mm lens. But as we get into in that discussion, you couldn't even just go down a street because it took so long to do it that you would have morning at one end of the street and night at the other end. So you'd have to start going down a street and then jump over to another street, which you'd done the midday of the previous day and then get its midday and then jump back to another street to get its end lighting. And then, you know, assuming that you'd done all of that at ground level, you had to do it again up 120 feet on a on a lift and then again on the tops of buildings and then it, you had to yep. take all of that and combine it and then remove everything that was on the streets <laughs> and then populate it all and that's before you even actually start on a single shot just to get something for Iron Man to fly through. Um, didn't he say it was like four four guys or something like that? It took him about eight weeks to shoot all that stuff. Is that yeah. right? Or was it eight guys in four weeks or something like that? But, uh, I mean, the amount of work, the amount of labor and time that went into just capturing those HDRs for the rebuilding of all those uh, textures for the city, I mean, man, that is a huge amount of work. But, you know, I think I, it, you just have to look at the results on screen. I mean, all that kind of effort and that kind of diligence and attention to detail – it just completely pays off. I mean, because that stuff works so well in the film, and all those differences of you know the potential differences in time of day or direction of light and stuff. You know, the action is moving so fast and stuff that I mean, I didn't even notice anything like that. I I I just it didn't even register. So I mean, I think I don't know. It's just amazing. It's amazing the amount of time they spent doing that, and that 
I don't know. I think the proof is on screen that it was worth it. I first sort of became really aware of the complexity of doing this. Um, I've done some shots like this myself where I did nights and we had helicopters flying around and the, the, the rooms really sort of failed in my version because we didn't have the complexity of room shaders behind the windows of, right. the, of the buildings because yeah, it was a commercial. And, yeah. And so then I became aware of it when we're talking to Deneg. Deneg on uh, some of the Batman films really went to town and kind of developed what is now, I guess, the approach for doing this kind of stuff. Though, though obviously ILM in their own right have developed a hell of a good pipeline for doing uh, vast cities and, you know, clearly they did with uh, Terminator. But uh, sorry, Terminator with their Transformers. But um, I got to the point of asking them in that podcast about the, the rooms, and I was just so amused when he was like, "Yeah, yeah, we put lots of blinds in." I was like, "What? <laughs> yeah, blinds. We really like blinds." <laughs> anyway, yeah. You can hear that. Great in the, problem solved. Yeah, I know it was great in the podcast. But Matt Leonard, I'm going to switch gears now because people can listen to that. Uh, uh, separately, to the helicarrier. Um, now, apparently this was a fan thing that uh, had been in the comics. I was not really aware of it other than uh, had an inkling of it when they were making it. Um, big CG problem and one that is a classic for scale because you've got to try and indicate vast scale. Well, we all know the size of a aircraft carrier and it's obviously meant to be sort of based off that. Yeah. And I thought that they, they nailed the scale. What about you? Yeah, the scale looked... The scale looked really good, and I think they did it by just adding a huge amount of detail in there. So as you, as you had those shots kind of showing it initially um, as the helicopter comes into land, and then they have obviously lots of um, other shots, especially once kind of Orkai begins to attack, just the amount of detail that they had seemed to put into not only the model but the textures and the lighting and all the ambient occlusion that was going on, everything just gave it a huge amount of scale. And when it obviously gets into it actually kind of launching from the ship into the into the kind of the, the flying craft. All the work again that Scanline did in adding the water and, and all that, all of that really helped to sell the the scale of how big this thing was. And I think there was no doubt as you watched it that this this craft is absolutely huge. And uh, I think that's really down to kind of the modelers, the textures, and uh, the sim guys in, in just the detail that they put in there. I can't imagine how long those shots took to render. There is a shot as it's going up, and it's a sort of a uh, shooting horizontally. It's not looking down or up. It's f- uh, from a virtual camera that would be sort of, I guess, off the side of the helicarrier looking as water starts draining down from sections mm, where the yes. engines are. Now, you're actually at sort of the height of the deck, and it's a kind of a I don't know, three-quarter side shot, and there's water streaming out of some parts of the machinery. And that one shot, which i got to tell you, probably in no way is a trailer shot, no way is it a PR shot. It's just uh, this, I don't think... I don't think you even have any characters in shot. Maybe you do, and they're up on the deck. My eye was going to the water sims of the way that it was um, channeling and falling in the uh, in the side sort of metal, I don't know, gateways or you know sections of the engine. And it was one of the best pieces of 3D, especially water sims I've seen ever. It was spectacularly good. I mean, I would, I, I was just stunned at this one shot. It was like maybe two or three seconds long. It really wasn't a shot you'd kind of notice. There was no big plot point. But somebody loved that shot. Somebody just 
Somebody worked nights on that one because it just had the water streaming in the most believable fashion. And great combination of uh, opaque water from the from the aeration of the water and the, the sort of clearer, uh, more solid, deep, rich. And also, I'm sure there was quite a lot of lens curvature. I'm sure that the lensing really helped on that heli carrier because it felt like mm. you're in on 25s. Of course, it's being yeah. all CG. You shouldn't be able to tell that unless they added curvature. But even if you look at some of the PR shots that were released that are on our side, they feel like wide-angle lenses. The the way yeah, that the yeah. the clouds behind the heli character have that kind of wide-angle feel, the way the water is kind of falling off in the top shot looking down, really, really subtle. Well, no, you think like just really good lensing. I thought too, the other thing that was really great was just in comp too, they added, you know, kind of the, the sort of like the... Um, you know, like if you're in the backyard and you spray your hose uh, with your thumb over the nozzle, you know, you can make a rainbow. And they added some of that kind of rainbow kind of uh, effect in, in comp. And I thought, you know, all those little details together um, were just really great. But, yeah, getting that kind of – the combination of both the aerated water as well as the sort of, you know, where it's uh, self-intersecting. So you've got, you know, the aeration, but you've also got, you know, the, the splashing and then the splashing of the splashing. Mm. And it, it really felt like they had mastered um, – uh, that in a way that I haven't seen done so well before. Yeah, I mean, I thought that one shot, I think the one you're talking about is where it first comes up out of the yeah. water, right? And yep. the, it's like Hawkeye and I think Captain America or something, I don't know, are standing there in the foreground and you're sort of looking uh, kind of over their shoulder and you see this thing start to come up out of the water. I mean, it just was amazing looking. I mean, I I think the, <laughs> you know, the conceit and the design of a flying aircraft carrier is totally impractical and kind of absurd. But at the same time, too, like given, you know, given that absurdity, which is, you know, neither here nor there in a movie about superheroes. Um, yeah, that, that stuff was just remarkable. Yeah, yeah, I I mean, obviously, I'm with you. The whole idea of the flying aircraft carrier, and then the cloaking device. <laughs> I mean, it was so dangerous. On it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. It became it became so dangerous. Like they're in the air, and and the one engine fails, and like I just am like, just put it back on the water. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's but no also they, they're completely unnecessary. Like we're going to arbitrarily be in the middle of nowhere and arbitrarily fly to some <laughs> other middle of nowhere, which really doesn't matter because you know. That was the one part in the script probably where I felt like story wise and script wise like. It felt kind of clumsy, like it didn't really seem to have a purpose. You know, um, I well, thought the. I, but I think its purpose was you wanted to have them, you wanted to have them not stopped. So by having them on the heli carrier, kind of moving somewhere, it felt like the story going wasn't somewhere. Yeah, and that gave them the excuse for doing all of that great uh, kind of character work, character stuff. Yeah, yeah, but. I agree. Like it's just the stupidest thing ever. And the uh, the defense mechanism, like we're going to put uh, whoever we want in this thing. And if anything happens, we're just going to hit the the flush button and he's going to just basically shoot out the bottom of the – I mean, it's like, hello, what? Yeah. That's you, you sort of built this thing and you thought of that when you were building it? Let's just uh, have a central tunnel down through the middle of our right. helicarrier. Yeah, I, I, I will say those the simplicity of those kinds of things, that's great for the eight-year-olds in the theater, though. They, they totally get it and they love yeah. that Press stuff, button, so. shoots out. Bugger the poor people below that you're dropping him on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you not exactly. shoot him up or something. If you want to kill him, can't you just jettison him into space? Do you have to really like just drop him on some poor city? I happen to be over in New York. Bugger that Empire State, dead. <laughs> you know, it's like anyway. Um, so we can't press the button. Why not? We're over a populated area. Damn! I wish we'd thought of that. Um, you know. Anyway, that's fine. The the I didn't. You know, I kind of dismissed the invisibility cloak and stuff as just so out there. Um, and 
and yet as 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 great as that scale was and it was really really great another good example of scale was i think in the destruction of the secret base at the beginning like both of those um the fracturing and collapsing from the surface kind of point of view i thought were were not you know the major stuff like new york but both really worked well and and again had uh, had this great scale we haven't discussed much about that opening escape but uh uh from a Stuttgart point of view, uh, how did you find the uh, the uh, the base at the beginning, Matt? That that was hydraulics work, right? Yeah, I think I think hydraulics did that. Yeah, I, I really liked it. There was one shot right at the very beginning when it first started to crack that I wasn't too sure about. It didn't quite look right, but but it was only a quick shot of the ground kind of cracking initially. But once you kind of got into the full base, kind of just imploding on itself, it just looked fantastic. The uh, all the dynamics, the particles look great. All of the, the it kind of reminded me um, of the kind of the Mission Impossible uh, collapse that we saw on the Kremlin that obviously ILM did, but it had just a huge amount of detail with um, all the building, all the brickwork just crumbling in on itself. A, a really nice kind of fluid dynamics, kind of dust cloud coming out from it all. And again, the pacing was great. The pacing was good, kind of slow enough for them to be able to get away, but still had this kind of feeling of impending doom as it kind of collapsed around them. I, I, apparently, it's a school that was under construction, and they didn't destroy it, of course. Um, and wouldn't it be cool if you were like, okay, we're going to start at the school, which was the you know secret base of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I mean, if you're a school kid, and like, this is the building that was the secret base of S.H.I.E.L.D., <laughs> yeah, I'm in totally. Block A. You'd be like, awesome. Hey, um... Uh, switching Matt, Matt Wallen, um, we have Iron Man used both by ILM, mm. principally by ILM. Obviously, it's, ILM was lead on the Iron Man films, and they did such a spectacularly good job with the uh, with the shaders and stuff on him. But we've now got him shared between Weta and ILM. And I wondered if you could talk about that, because there's this forest scene uh, where the guys are fighting. And while it's interesting at a number of levels, it's a heck of a lighting problem, because it's so dark... And it's green, and green on red suits doesn't really show up very well. Well, yeah, that was Guy Williams and his team at Weta Digital, and I was I, I uh, a while back you had done uh, an interview with uh, Ben Snow where you talked about I believe it was post Iron Man two, and you talked in great detail about the way in which ILM had spent uh, an enormous amount of time developing the look of the materials for the Iron Man suit. And um, and it was just fascinating and uh, incredibly uh, complex attention to detail to get the kind of um, you know scatter of light and whatnot um, that you would get off of that metallic fleck paint. But but ILM shared uh, their uh, model resources in particular as well as all their materials with um, with Weta. But Weta has a different rendering pipeline, so they needed to make some significant changes to the way in which uh, they dealt with all the metallic surfaces. Um, in order to get it to work correctly in their pipeline. But, I mean, you go and you look at uh, all this work that's done in that key forest battle scene where you've got basically, I think it's uh, Iron Man and uh, Thor and then Captain America, too, coming in and fighting uh, in this forest. But, um, you know, they wound up with uh, a great opportunity to sort of match the look of what ILM had done. And I think, you know, to me... I didn't know that Weta had done Iron Man when I saw the film, and I just assumed, oh, it's you know, it's the the Iron Man, you know, tweaked and updated uh, from Iron Man Two that 
that ILM had worked on and seeing it, you know, it, it was just totally seamless, but they'd gone and shot a ton of, um, high resolution, um, sort of IBL type setups that they were able to use to get, uh, all the various regions that they needed in order to, um, pass that through the renderer to get the kind of look that they needed for, um, for Iron Man and all his materials. And I mean, you look at it in the, in the end and it's just, I, I, I didn't know it was any different until, uh, I had seen the film and came back and started reading more about it online. So there were a few practical trees in the sense that they were practical, able to be destroyed, not real trees, uh, that weren't full mm. height, obviously. But other than that, they didn't actually knock any trees over. They didn't blow any trees up. Uh, so you had a lot of tree destruction. So obviously Weta was going to do it, right? Because like, who else does forests and trees than the Lord <laughs> of the Rings guys? But um, yeah. it was dark, and it was dark because they were basically using correct lighting, and they didn't wind up the cinematic lighting that would give all the characters lots of you know their own personal lights that were unmotivated. I liked it, but some people have said it was dark. What, what did you think? Hmm, I didn't. I didn't think so at all, personally. I mean, I thought you know it was dark, but I mean, I saw it you know in three D with the polarized glasses on, and I mean, it wasn't too dark to be able to see what was going on. I mean, I felt like I completely understood you know what was happening in terms of the action, where they were. Um, I don't know. I thought that was nice, and I thought it it really helped. Uh, you know, with some of the problems, the biggest problem I felt was the the, uh, the changes and the updates to the uh, Captain America costume. And, you know, anytime you could put that in darkness, it looked better, I thought. Well, yeah. <laughs> Actually, a lot of those outfits really had to suffer a tremendous lighting changes because both those two characters, you're in pitch black virtually in certain parts. But then they have that other scene where they're trying to save the heli character, which is super blue sky, mm. um, sunlit, as well as sort of flying between buildings. But if I can switch to you, uh, the other Matt, Matt Lennon, um, 300,000 individually modelled pine needles on CG trees. How do you reckon the CG forest held up? I thought it looked, it looked really nice. I can imagine it being a complete nightmare to try and composite all that together with them flying kind of in and amongst all the trees. And I, 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 I don't think it was so much... I mean, it would have been a compositing nightmare, but I don't think it would have been a rendering problem because I think Weta's pipeline since Lord of the Rings has been very heavily focused to get it right in the renderer. And they can generate data like almost no other facility in the world. I mean, they just have the most complicated data um, going. I mean, it really is like pushing the upper limits of almost every metric you can find. So I know that the compositing would have been hard, but... I think, I don't know, but I think you'd find that the real heavy lifting here was by the 3D team, um, especially the Sims feeding into those, like, vast renders. But when you say the compositing, you mean, like, just in terms of, what, getting all the elements to work? Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing they probably took their deep compositing pipeline a bit further than they had in the past and kind of utilized some of that um, extra data that they're going to get out of the renderers to try and piece everything together once it gets into comp talk about yeah, that because they they did use their deep rgba compositing so just explain what the deep compositing is and and why that meant they didn't need to have any holdout mats for all their dust sims and and particle sims well in the past we would have um traditionally had as you said holdout mats for any element that kind of was um in front or behind of another cg element which means that if you needed to, say, move something that was uh, in between some trees, you're going to end up with a black hole where that holdout mat would have fitted perfectly if you had not moved the element. And so what deep compositing gives you is it gives you depth 
in the actual pixel itself. So in a single RGBA um, color and alpha pixel, you also have depth that will go all the way back through that forest. And every uh, image or every uh, scene is going to have all that data. So it means that in the compositor, if they were running it through Nuke, which I believe they would have done, they were, yeah. um, you can you could literally take Iron Man or you could take Thor or whoever was in that uh, scene and you'd be able to slide them forward and back in space and also move them side to side or up and down. So if you find that the director comes in and says it would be great to see Iron Man a bit to the side or can we move Thor over here slightly, instead of having to go back and re-render all that, which obviously a big forest, as you said, with all the kind of dynamics going on, it would be a, a nightmare for the rendering uh, team to kind of run that through again with the deep data you can literally just slide it around and everything you need is there almost like a, a kind of a point cloud information so now you've been doing some stuff on uh deep compositing yourself haven't you i think i saw something that you were doing on your blog or your your diary was it or my yeah yeah i've been uh, i've been running some tests through maya through uh Renderman, and then into nuke and uh managed to get a pipeline Nowhere near as obviously as advanced as what Weta has, but a working pipeline that works uh, really well and enables you to pretty much do anything you want in the scene without having to rely on holdout mats. So, where is that on your website? That's uh, I can I'll put a link up on Twitter okay. straight after the show, so you'll be able to search for that. So, um, so that com- that complexity uh, in compositing, therefore, is not least of which that. Uh, I think, like in your case, tell me what you were getting in terms of a file size difference between like a standard frame and a deep compositing frame that was carrying forward that data. Well, it's it's interesting with uh, with RenderMan at the moment. You can only render out, or at least on my version, you can only render out uh, square deep files. So I was rendering out um, at 1024 square, both the um, RGB and the deep data, and they come out as two separate files. So I was using... Um, ILM's OpenEXR version 1 for my main color and other passes and then you get a DTEC file which contains the deep data and if you compare just a single frame like for like RGB and alpha was clocking in at around 9 megabytes yep. as a 32 Pretty standard. file and the deep file was coming out at about 125 meg Ooh, so that's yeah. only at, uh, at that size right obviously Weta's going to be working at higher frame sizes and uh, one would imagine they proportionally scale. There's no reason yeah, why volumetrically they, they wouldn't. Big. Yeah. They get super big. So, so uh, yeah. So that's, 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 yeah. Uh, that's in that format at the moment because they, we haven't got the unified open EXR format yet. So for those of you that are listening, that, that idea of two separate files, the industry is moving forward to being able to combine that into one, which we expect to come out in the open EXR 2.0, um, where you'll be able to get that data as, as sort of one file in much the same way that we would have uh, you know, a, a normals map or a positional map or a spec map or whatever is it, maybe a separate pass in an open EXR, you should be able to whack that extra data in. Though you're right at the moment in RenderMan, it isn't. And I believe RenderMan was exactly what uh, Weta was using because it's a pretty big RenderMan house. Um, yeah, it's it just, you know, it's, uh, I think it's so great in a film like this, there's so much you can dig into um, and so much fine detail. Um, I must admit, one of the ones that got my attention at NAB uh, there was a lecture given right before the film came out in the US actually on um, Iron Man's head up display 
and I think I mentioned this at the start of the show by uh, Cantina Creative. And what I thought was really interesting about this was that I, you know, pretty much uh, thought that that was a solved problem from the first films, but I was wrong. They'd done an enormous amount of work on coming up with a new head-up display to incorporate with the new suit, and far be it from just doing stuff that looked cool, which again is what I assumed. Somebody just sat around and go, that looked cool. Uh, the guys at, uh, at, and we mentioned this in the article, the guys actually went and spoke to an actual fighter pilot, uh, a guy called Johnny Green, and actually started asking him, well, if you were flying around, what sort of information would you want in a head-up display? So you might just look at head-up displays in Iron Man and say, that looks cool. But if you were to actually analyze it, and I dare say some people are, there's lots of stuff in there that is actually the kind of stuff you'd want to know, uh, apparently, according to real fighter pilots, which I just thought was too cool for, for school. Don't you agree, Matt? Matt Woolen? Yeah, totally. I mean, I I think it's it's... It's definitely an opportunity, you know. I remember in the first Iron Man film, the Jarvis character, uh, the in-flight uh, suit and in-house computer that uh, Tony Stark uses, it became a character unto itself. And I was it. Um, I hope I don't get this wrong. Was it the orphanage that before they shut down that did the first heads-up display? Could be. Is I, that wrong? I, I can't remember now, but um, I, that somehow sticks out in my mind. But I, I feel like that might be. Uh, Maybe that was after the fact. I don't know. But, um, but uh, you know, it became a character unto itself. And I think, yeah, the improvements they made on the, um, the, uh, the, the entire heads-up display, I mean, adding all that kind of detail, I mean, it makes – for people who will go back – I mean, I, you know, I'm not usually one uh, these days to go back and watch a movie a second or a third time um, in the theater – I'll usually wait until it comes out on video, but I have to confess, this is a movie I want to go back and see this in the theater again. And I did not realize that they had, I knew that the, um, the heads up display, it looked a little bit different. It had the sort of targeting, um, uh, rectangle, you know, like that would sort of target around, uh, mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr.'s eye. And I thought that was a neat addition. I don't remember seeing that quite in that way before, um, but I'd love to go back and look at some of those details and really see, you know, what did they include and how did they put it in there? Because, I mean, it, it just looked great. And, you know, they built, I think, a lot of that stuff uh, in uh, 3D, right? And then they brought it into After Effects and and um, and tweaked it and laid it in to get it to look the way they yeah, wanted. Yeah, from, from what we understand, there was about 20,000 separate pieces of, you know, actual art wow. and stuff that went into these during the course of the film. There was a bunch of the displays um, at various times. And... Look, you know, obviously a lot of it's After Effects and stuff, but they were paying special attention to it this time because it was going to be uh, done in stereo. And it was one of the areas that you mm. could get interesting stereo because uh, you know, it's a close-up yeah, right. shot and it's going to play well. And so they, they did. They worked on it and didn't just uh, sort of cheat it out. And I think that were maybe was something that I didn't get to see because I didn't see it in stereo. But and can, Cantina, are they a, uh, I hadn't heard of them before. Are they a newer company? I, do you know, Mike? Uh, look, I hadn't heard of them much before either, other than I heard this talk at uh, at NAB, and the guy that was going to be giving the talk couldn't turn up for some reason, so they had one of the designers mm. there, and so he was talking about it from a design point of view, and it was fascinating, and uh, we weren't allowed to tape that, so I'm glad I was there to hear it, uh, but then we followed up and, and spoke to them, and that's... Um, that's, you know, where I'm quoting this stuff from. But there was yeah, such cool. attention to detail. I mean, they looked at lots of real head-up displays. And, you know, the same thing I would say goes to the screens. They did work on the heli character yeah. screens. And Fuel did work on uh, <laughs> Tony Stark's homework assignment um, screens. And, again, in all of these cases, you need it to have a logic. You don't need it to be logical 
but it has to have some darn logic. Otherwise, it's kind of annoying people just waving their hands around in the air. Though I've got to say, this is also the source of one of my favourite gags in the film when uh, Stark walks up and covers up one eye and then kind of yeah. looks left and right. Yes. How does he use two screens? That well, it's a it. shame too, right, that Nick Fury will never be able to see this movie in 3D. Yes. But, but, but that self-aware gag, because they are the worst ergonomically designed screens in history, being down low and left and right and completely away. Yeah. I mean, the whole point of a head-up display is your head is up, not looking down to your side, especially for a man with one eye. But, yes, that was very, very funny. <laughs> um, so uh, I think we've covered most of the, the big stuff, um, but let's go through and just do our, what we tend to do, our favourite shots and, and least favourite shots. So I'm going to start with uh, Matt in Europe because you already named, I think, one that you didn't like, which was the um, one of the shots in the opening sequence uh, of the destruction of the underground secret base. Uh, is that the sort of the shot that you didn't like? And is there another one that you really did like from a visual effects point of view, not from a story point of view? That there was uh, there was one shot. I there was a collection of shots that I didn't think worked quite as well as I would have liked them to, which I I didn't haven't talked about. It's yep. in that whole kind of end section that I guess we haven't touched on so much. The big uh, the big fight scene at the end. But the the shot I liked the best was just after uh, Captain America says. Uh, to the Hulk, Hulk smash. There's a there's an, a close up of the Hulk's face for maybe a second and a half, two seconds, and just the emotion on his face is fantastic. And without a doubt, I could capture a single frame, and that could be my desktop for life. I just love that that image of the emotion and the thought process that they had going through his going through his head, and how that looked in his eyes, in his face. Uh, that was the shot for me that I could just keep on loop and watch every day okay and and you said you didn't like what was it that in the end sequence that you didn't like we sort of touched on it when we were talking about new york but maybe we should do something yeah there was there were some shots where um i think the 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 aliens are called uh the the titra or something like that and there was there was a number of shots where loki and then a bit later thor were flying around on their ships and the one that stood out to me was after Loki kind of jumps off the building or falls off the building and he lands on uh, one of these flying ships, there's a shot pretty soon after where he flies directly yep. at camera. Yep. And it just didn't quite feel right to me. I, I don't know what. I don't think I could have done it better. But it, it just didn't feel right at all. And then once Black Widow ended up on those uh, ships and I think Thor did later, they all just felt slightly off and maybe that was just me no no i agree i i I described it as the uh as the flash gordon effect and yeah i think what you needed there was the only thing i would suggest that maybe something i would have looked at if i was on that team and god knows they were great shots but you know in a pantheon of awesome shots they didn't really hold mustard much I think it needed a longer lens feel and maybe a bit of kind of that high-frequency vibration that you get from yeah, not being able to yeah. register a long lens. This sort of super fake lens traveling along with them just felt a bit too mm-hmm. cheesy Flash gordon for me. But but the one thing they did do with those shots that I thought was we, – we, we talked about shots like this before on um, – uh, back on a previous show where we talked about cowboys and aliens. And there was a shot where uh, I think it was Olivia Wilde and um, – Daniel Craig, right? Or they're attached to one of those alien ships in Cowboys and Aliens. And we were talking about how it felt very much like they were, you know, locked off with a big wind machine blowing and the wind machine wasn't, you know, turned up high enough. The one thing I thought they did well in these shots where you had 
Black Widow and uh, the other characters riding on the uh, the little rocket cycles was it did feel like they had a lot more um, atmosphere. Like, and I thought because that was actually something I noticed in the in the film, uh, and it it felt like they were moving much more. Uh, at speed to the scale of what you'd think would be happening. I thought that was better. Yeah, I just thought, you know, that great shot from the trailer where he goes, I'm bringing the party to you right before Widow says, that doesn't look like a party to me. You know, the... um, Right. That had great lensing, like uh, the virtual cinematography on that as he comes around the corner and the the right amount of sort of seek and find of the lensing with the creature and the reveal. Um, Just superb stuff. But those shots were just too sort of sugar candy composed for my liking. And I think those are hard shots to do though. I mean, oh, yeah. It's hard to get those to look right, you know, because they are, they, it is such a cheat and I, it's rare to see a shot done like that. That looks great. I think the exception would be um, going back to um, what was it? X-Men first class or something. I think. Yeah. There were some great sequences in that. Yeah. There were some great flying shots in yeah. that. And I think, you know, had they followed some of that, um, which they actually did in this film with some of the Iron Man flying stuff mm. and even some of the Thor flying. There was some of that searching camera, um, which I think was used to great effect in the X-Men film. Yep. Um, I felt like they did a little bit of that in this, but they didn't do it when they were on those, um, on those you know, Hawkman rocket cycle. Things. And the only thing I'd say in, in our defense is, I don't know if you've seen any of the recent BBC documentaries on birds, but there's some migratory bird footage where they filmed air-to-air birds flying. And they don't feel cheesy like that. They feel remarkable mm. and breathtaking, but I would have totally gone there if I wanted that type of a shot. Now, maybe a bird isn't traveling as fast as those flying um, scooters, but nevertheless, uh, it just, it, it's got to be possible to pull that off without making it Battlestar Galactica seeking camera. And yeah. uh, so that's where I would have, I would have really uh, referenced. It just did feel oddly perfectly composed, perfectly lensed and and sort of CGI for that respect. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that would be the bit that I didn't really go for. I, I've got to say, I would, you know, really personally, uh, well, let me hang back. <laughs> Matt, what were your favourite uh, and least favourite shots? Oh, I would say uh, probably my favourite shots would be any shot that had Black Widow in it. No, sorry. <laughs> She's always, she was always fun to watch. But um, no, I, I really liked uh, that shot I mentioned at the beginning. I really loved that, which I guess in reality wasn't one shot, but that sort of huge sweeping shot that goes all around the city where you see sort of all of the characters in their current state of uh, battle. I thought that that was just really exciting. And then there was one other shot that, um, I mean, I, it's one of those ones where I liked it when I saw it, but it was one of those things where like, I wasn't sure, do I like it or do I hate it? But it was this great shot where, um, uh, where I think Hawkeye is still under the effect of, um, what's his name? Loki. And he's aboard one of those, uh, Avenger jet fighter things that looks sort of like a Falcon. And, um, you see the, the back door is opening because he's about to land on the, the helicarrier and the back door is opening and you see him in the back and, and the camera kind of uh, moves, you see him up close, but the camera kind of moves away and you can still sort of see him walking towards the edge. And I think a shot like that is so difficult to make work, but I actually felt like that one, you know, it gets really dark inside the interior of the ship, which is what would happen given the, the brightness of the sky outside that it becomes difficult to see. But I thought that that was a shot that, 
I think would be really challenging and difficult to achieve and the way in which they were able to, um, I think that was a Weta shot, right? And I think the way that they, they did that shot, it, looked, it just looked great. It, it turned out really nice. And there was something about it that it felt believable. It felt kind of, um, you know, had kind of a, <laughs> it reminded me of some video game cut sequence or something in the, it made me think of, I guess, like a Halo game or something. But, but um, I really liked the look of that. And I thought that was really neat. Um, and then, of course, you can't help but love the, um, the big hero shot um, where it circles around, and it's the one that's in all the commercials, where it circles around sort of all the Avengers um, on the ground. I think if I had one shot to pick, though, that I, that I maybe wasn't so crazy about, um, I think it would really only be the, the things that I thought were really problematic were just the cycles uh, in the sky, the, the, um, the, the planar aspect of the, the, the 3D conversion, I thought, was something that, in just some of the shots, the sharpness of the elements that we were supposed to focus on, it was so sharp that it felt plainer uh, in a way that it kind of just, I felt like, uh, that, you know, it took me out of it a little bit. It didn't feel like it was as, um, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like it had the same level of quality. I think there were great uh, 3D conversion shots in there as well, not to take anything away from the work they did. But, you know, I think it's maybe, maybe it's the difference between, uh, you know, a conversion and a, and a native 3D. I don't know, but uh, I, I would like to go back and see it again in just straight 2D. Well, I was going to name something else, but actually I've decided I'm going to stick with my uh, water coming off the helicarrier. It's just, mm. it, it's a shot that shouldn't have been as remarkable as it was. So I'm going to give it my kind of thumbs up because it, it just, it made me gasp in a way that wasn't due to plot. It was just due to technical excellence. So I, I want to, sort of flag that to the people who it could have been ILM could have been scanlock because they both worked on that sequence but certainly the assets were shared so let's uh let's stay there though I will give a special mention I do love that bit where uh Iron Man lands at Stark Tower and just walks along and the suit comes off uh, as he's walking um but I'm pretty sure I just like that because it's a kick-ass shot <laughs> not necessarily because <laughs> it's just technically excellent and and I think I've already isolated what I didn't like uh in that end sequence well look that's that's it for this week uh, it's been terrific discussion um I just can't thank you guys enough um so Matt obviously you're at uh, Stuttgart right now but you're going to post that reference to your work in uh, having a look at uh, deep compositing pipelines on your blog do you want to give the details of just where your site normally is or uh, you can, yeah, you can find me obviously on Twitter as, as uh, Matt D. Leonard. So that's probably going to be where I'm going to post it, unless you would like me to uh, put the demo uh, on one of your sites. Oh, okay. Well, we could do that as well. <laughs> and then, and the other Matt, um, what about people uh, checking you down and where you're at? Uh, you can always find me. I'm at Virginia Commonwealth University, where, um, by the way, uh, President uh, Obama here in the United States kicked off his re-election campaign at my university last Saturday, which was kind of cool. Um, but you can also find me at uh, mattwallen.com for all things me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, of course, you'll find me over at FX Guide. And uh, I want to thank uh, Ian Fales in particular, who did a huge amount of work on the Avengers story and over FX Guide. Um, just the way our software works, it only lets one name. And it's the person that started the story um, uh, so his byline should really be on that story. Mine is on it only because I started with uh, the ILM bit, having spoken to Jeff White. And the podcast, of course, uh, thanks to our team for putting that stuff together. I want to thank also ILM and the other houses like Weta who are really generous in giving us their time. It is uh, something we don't take for granted that people um, you know, are this open as an industry. And then, of course, 
it's great. Then they then also don't mind that we <laughs> criticise their work on the on the VFX show. But hopefully, uh, it's all to a, a further cause of just uh, fine-tuning the art. Um, that's it for this week. Uh, I really appreciate you guys uh, being with us. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts. We've got some really good stuff coming up in terms of uh, some more retro shows and some new uh, shows. Of course, the Simon Blockbuster season is only just starting, so I'm really looking forward to some of those Batman-type films, as you can imagine. Guys, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Really, really great. Thank you. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks so much. See you. Any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.